Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 124 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello. And my beloved husband Dylan is our sound recordist. I feel so, like you slipped beloved in there. Like, just like to give him a little. You're not on microphone, so you're I, beloved. I was feeling bad because he was last, and I didn't <laughs> want to say last but not least. So this week we went through our first books on the shelf and it was so exciting and I'm really nervous for what book is going to be picked next. I, I'm, I'm excited. I, I, my book was one that I was a little bit nervous about and I enjoyed it so much that I was like, ah, this is fine. Like, uh, I'll probably like all the books. I had a similar experience where I was reading it and I was my book and I was going really quickly through it and I was like, oh wait, I picked all these books. That's exactly what I thought. <laughs> I was like, oh, these aren't books that are like being foisted on. It's like at one point I did really want to read this. Right. Yeah. There's a reason that it is on the list. Um, and we're also gearing up for a big vacation. Toby and Andrew discovered they're going to be in Europe at the same time. Not just Europe, Bailey. The same city in Europe. Vienna. Vienna. Dylan and I are gearing up to go to a less exciting trip to Maine and New York. Excuse me? Wow, burn for your families. Mm. No, well, it's exciting in a different way, but I've been thinking about... Exciting in a different way. (laughs) That sounds like beloved. I have been thinking about how I have to finish the book I'm currently reading before the vacation starts so I don't take a book that I only have 50 pages with me on the plane and take up a spot. I do think about that. I, I do think about that. I just started a new book, so I'm excited. Nice. I have about 100 pages to go in the book I've been reading for a while, and so I want to finish that before, especially because I'm probably maybe going to get more books for Christmas, and so I don't want to <laughs> maybe take up space. Maybe. On like a trip, say you're going somewhere, in this example, like to Europe, to a place you haven't really seen before, how many books do you bring, Bailey or anyone? I always bring more than I think I'm going to need. Usually I don't end up actually reading on those kinds of trips, but I usually bring like two or three. That was, Ooh, my, that was my question because I like the first time I did my like first adult trip, I brought a ton of books and didn't touch any of them. So now I'm basically just going to bring Catch-22 on this trip because I need to read it for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I only bring one usually. I bring the one I'm reading and then I kind of like the scrounge that can happen. Because it'll be like, if you run out of book, like if you really enjoy it and you read it faster than you think is going to happen, then you might have to be forced to go out into the city and like find a book somehow, especially if you're in like a weird place you can end up getting. I find in a lot of, maybe not European cities, but like other places, uh, like more far-flung destinations tend to only have classics mm-hmm. available. And so I've ended up reading a fair amount of classes when I'm, classics when I'm on a trip and I'm like, okay, well, they only have... Huck Finn, so I guess I'm going to be reading Huck Finn. Here we go. Toby, that's a cool way of doing it. Yeah, I have never done that. My version of that is going to the airport bookstore and spending way too much money on the latest popular book. Oh, I've done that too. Yeah. It's kind of like it's kind of like locking yourself in a candy store and being like, oh no. <laughs> Oops, gotta <laughs> I eat candy I gotta eat all this for candy now. <laughs> okay, so this week, uh, Toby had the first book from his shelf, which was... A tree grows in Brooklyn. Wow! Yeah. No, I I enjoyed this a lot more than I thought I would. It's one of those ones that I'd had on my lit like you know mental list at le- at least for a long time, probably since like high school when I heard about it. And I was always under the impression because it was published, I think, in the eighties, um, that it was about a contem- It was a contemporary story. It was like published in nineteen fifty two. 
Okay, never. Well, I was under many wrong impressions about this book then. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, th- I thought it was like a contemporary story at least, um, but really, it's um, in the early 1900s. It's a story of um, a poor family, and it centers around a poor girl, um, Francie Nolan, who grow- grows up in Williamsburg, among other couple locations, but mostly she lives in Williamsburg in the turn of the century, um, and it is really, really good. I really enjoyed it. That's it. So you just put it on your list because you had heard about it and other people had talked about it. And what made you not pick it up? Yeah, it just never really tugged at me. Like it was like one of those ones you put it on there. You're like, I should read this. And then it's never like you're scanning and you're like, oh, do I want to read it? Not right. really. I need to correct myself. It was published in 1943. 1943. I am I so sorry that I misled everyone. One of the few things I know about this book is that it soldiers... Like, they made a version that soldiers could carry with them in World War II. And, like, wow. that's how it got popular, is, like, people would be reading it in the war. So, yeah, that surprises me because it's not the most uplifting book. Like, they go through really hard times. There's a lot about, you know, poverty and how difficult it is. You know, it's always up. It's not like, oh, I'm in the trenches. Or not in the trenches, but, you know, I'm at war and I need to be uplifted. I'm going to read this book. Um, there are certainly uplifting parts, but on the whole, I would say there's a lot of grinding, depressing things about the reality of being poor. Maybe it has to do with like the day-to-day life, you know, or maybe there's yeah. some kind of nostalgia to it being the turn of the century and being published in the 1940s if people yeah. remember their childhoods or something. It's funny. Um, I can see all that being true. And then thinking about war, I always I expected it to focus more on the First World War. But it's I think it's very true to life where it's like, you know, these are very poor people living in Williamsburg. They're not, like, they know that war is happening. They, they understand global events are happening. But really, like, they're just trying to eat. They're trying right. to, like, get food on the table and see who can go back to school. And, um, yeah, so I was always expecting World War One to kind of creep in there. But it never, it was there like, yeah, it's happening. And there's some kind of allusions to it later in the book, but it's never a big thing. Right. But it's like she did her research so hardcore. Like, she has so many amazing facts and real... It's peppered throughout with songs that you can tell are period songs and rhymes and uh, just details that are incredible. Like there's this amazing story. Um, They do all this kind of stuff to kind of get what they can um, because they're so poor. And there's this insane story about these people who run Christmas tree lots and they'll sell as many Christmas trees as they can in New York um, until like the last day before Christmas. And they're like, ah, nobody's going to buy any more trees. It's too late. And they do this thing where like they'll take the smallest children in the neighborhood and they'll have them stand in the street and they will throw Christmas trees at them. And if the children can catch them and not like get knocked over by the Christmas tree, then they they get to keep it. <laughs> and it's like that kind of like turn of the century, like, yeah, kids, like see if you can stand it. Like uh, it's the book is full of that stuff and it's it's interesting and it's cool to think that um, I mean, cool in like a child abuse way, but you know, they they signed up for it. I don't know. Um, I kind of want to try to see if I could catch a Christmas tree. Yeah, it's a great the scene. It's like one of my favorite scenes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the one of my favorite scenes. And then one of the other things, I another detail. I don't want to give too much away, but there's a great detail um, where Fran uh, Francie graduates uh, a certain level of school. I don't want to give away what. Um, but they, she has kids like sign her yearbook and I just, it's one of those things where you're like, oh, how little times have changed because all the girls in her class are writing things like, and I know Dylan and I went to the same school when we were kids and everyone would write hags, like have a great summer, like <laughs> uh-huh. something just like the most, everyone's say the same stuff. And there's a, uh, 
a poem that I wrote down because I enjoyed it so much. <laughs> uh, and this is one of the things that the, one of the other girls wrote in her book. When you are married and your husband gets cross, suck him with a poker and get a divorce. <laughs> You're saying you wrote that same poem? <laughs> oh, no. that's that, But, like, that's one of, like, the things that, like, oh, she got that, like, four times in her book. It's, like, oh, instead of oh, hags. Okay, okay, yeah, this yeah. is the kind of thing that, like, <laughs> it's, like, simultaneously, you know, they write the same thing over and over, which is funny. And then it also is, like, this... It's more eloquent. It's like a funny rhyme yeah. instead of just hags. And it's also like could, got like a bit of domestic violence wrapped up in it. Like very turn of the century. Uh, yeah. I, I guess I think of it as a lady book because when I first read it, I think I was in the seventh grade and I was in a book club with my mom and it was a mother daughter book club. And we read it for that. I'm you sorry. I can see that. What? <laughs> yeah. We read also To Kill a Mockingbird, Out of the Dust. Notorious lady book. The, to Kill a Mockingbird. The ear, the eye, and the arm. That kind of stuff. I can I can see this one being a good fit for like a mother daughter uh, book club because it is very much concerned with the relationship between Francie and her mother. Mm-hmm. Although it's funny that you and your mom write it together because the relationship between Francie and her mother is terrible. Uh-oh. Like it's not it's not awful awful, but there's some very sad realities about like what being poor like the decisions that it makes you make about your children. Mm-hmm. And she her mother kind of has to choose which child to care about more, and it's not Francie. And that's not that's not a spoiler. Like that's like the third chapter of the book. They're like she didn't like Francie, <laughs> so <laughs> better not tell her she likes her son more. <laughs> oh, but no, Francie figures it out. It's real sad. Oh no, Andrew, have you read this one? I have not, and I'm still hung up on the fact that Mom invited you to do a book club with her, and not never invited me <laughs> to do a book club. I but mean, okay. it was a daughter mother book club. You know, there probably was a daughter son one that I could have been invited mm-hmm. to. <laughs> We could have read Animorphs together when I was seven. <laughs> yes. I could just imagine, like, everyone's got their, like, cup of tea. Like, I enjoyed when he turned into a lizard and ate that guy. <laughs> <laughs> we did have tea. <laughs> <laughs> did you have a favorite Animorph? <laughs> no. I think I mostly enjoyed the books for their covers. I know that's not what you're supposed to yep. do. But at that age, I was like, oh, this one, he turns into an anteater. That's going to be hardcore. <laughs> There's no, there's no secret. It's literally the the picture is like a step by step transformation of that kid's face into like the animal's yeah, face. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like I only read like the first three. What was the first oh, one? Oh yeah, there's like thirty. I think I only yeah. read like two or three of them. Um, I do have a question related to the title, which is, if I remember, it's been many years since I've read the book, but the the tree growing is like a central metaphor in the book. Is that true? Kind of. It's uh, it's one of those ones, I'd say the book reads very, um, because it's written in like an old style, like, you know, she's kind of aping the styles of the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. It feels a bit timeless. So it doesn't read like a 1950s book. But there is a directness to the metaphor of the tree that I think a lot of uh, modern authors that were trying to do the same thing wouldn't try today. So it's literally like in the first chapter, she's like, there was a tree. It was like poverty it grew in the gutter and it like and the end of the book is like bookended it's like this tree grew like they cut it down it grew somewhere else and it's like i don't know i enjoyed the book a lot that part i was like okay we get it yeah well and and they also like dropped like she dropped it like i was expecting like okay you're right tree grows in brooklyn this is gonna be a central metaphor we're gonna come back and see it in winter and it's gonna be bedraggled or something she just abandons it for like (laughs) it's a quite a long book and then at the end she's like oh yeah it grew somewhere else maybe your editor's like cut it on the tree stuff (laughs) i like it for the title but um 
And yeah, I don't know. I think if I saw that cover in the bookstore, I would have the same reaction that I've had to every edition of this book, which is I won't read it right now. Like not not today. Yes, later. Yeah. So if you had the book, though, would you keep it on your shelf? Would you recommend it to others? How many stars are you giving it? I gave it four stars. I did really enjoy it. Um, it's the writing is very good. The story is engaging. It was a little bit too long, I felt, but that's whatever. Um, recommend it to others? I don't know. I think I'd have it would be it'd have to be a person that I thought was interested in several of like the the points about the book. Like they like turn of the century things. They like is it is am I using the term correctly? Bildungsroman, where it's like about a family and also about a character growing up. Bildungsroman is usually like coming of age, right? Yeah. So she yeah. she's coming of age. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, turn of the century buildings from on, and then um, yeah, and then like kind of historical, factual learning about things. I recommend I recommended it to my wife, and she's reading it and enjoying it a lot because of the historical stuff. Oh, cool. Um, Andrew, did you have any facts that you wanted to share? <clears throat> well, so sort of. Yeah, why not? Who who knows? Um, <laughs> so Betty Smith, um, the author, uh, didn't write a lot of other novels. She wrote, I think, three other ones. Um, but a bush grows a very... in a bush grows in flatbush. <laughs> uh, none of them uh, had trees or any sort of um, floral metaphor in them in their title. I'm sorry to report. Oh, no. uh, however, she did. She was a very uh, accomplished playwright as well before a Tree Grows in Brooklyn came out, which is near and dear to my heart. And some of her plays had some really fantastic titles. Um, Do tell that that <laughs> made me laugh. <laughs> I'd love to have a segment in the future where if we have titles like this, where it's like you have to have a game where it's like, is this a Betty yeah. title? Give us or, three titles. Or like a Subway sandwich or something. <laughs> okay, well, I'll tell you what. I'll give you an example of about four of her titles, and then I'll make up three, and you have to pick which one's the real one. Okay. Yeah. Right now. All right, let's okay. do it. So these are going to be so here are the three. Here are the four real examples. <clears throat> Darkness at the window. <laughs> Murder in the snow. What? Really? Sounds like a poem. They released Barabbas. What? Near closing time. <laughs> it sounds like a sentence. It's almost a sentence. Yeah, it's, it's almost the first. I should have like the and first. The last line real one. <laughs> the professor roars. Oh, I think I'd want to see that one the most. All right, and so I'm going to give you three. I'm going to give you three. One of these is a real Betty Smith play. Okay. 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 All right. The Hatter's Wife. Fun After Supper. Oh, I think it's that one. A Cat Behind a Post Bench. No way. Definitely the second one. Second one. Yeah, it's Fun After Supper. You guys... You guys <laughs> yeah! yeah. I fly there, but... It was your halting delivery of the cat... Yeah. Behind... Or was it going to be behind? Uh, the post... I thought you were going to go for the first one. <laughs> the first one was great. first that one was, was good. was very convincing. The Hatter's Wife. <laughs> Um, nice. I did, had no idea. All right. So anything else we should... Oh, what, is the book at all... Does it have to do with her life? Is it biographical so at all? I, I did find an article about that. Apparently it's autobiographical in the sense that she grew up in Williamsburg in a reasonably similar circumstance, but she's on record as saying it's not a complete autobiography and her life was much less bleak than Francie's. It's not my life, okay? So my, my guess is there's a lot of there's a lot of parallels, and I'm sure a lot of the details that you talked about, Toby, came from just the fact that that was her reality. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, don't worry too much. It wasn't quite as bleak if you're talking about sort of the darker tone. Or she's just saying that to, like, appease her mom and dad. Like, not based on you. What? 
Oh, wait, I forgot my favorite play title. (laughs) Uh, This is a 1940 play that she wrote called Heroes Just Happen. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew, you got to stage a revival of one of these. There, honestly, it was very hard to find any titles of her plays. I looked around oh. for a very long time. I kept seeing that she was a playwright, and I couldn't find it until like ten minutes before we started recording, like a list of her actual writing. Cool. Well, I've already read this one, but Dylan, Andrew, do you think you'd check this one out? Uh, yeah, I would check this one out. It it unfortunately falls into a category that I already have a lot of on my shelf, which is like things I should have read longer classics sort of situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I'm intrigued, but. I don't know that I'm going to go grab it right now and add it to my list right now. I think it's going to have to come a little later. I will say it's readable. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not it's not a slog. I didn't breeze through it, but it was, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith. Four stars. Four stars. Yeah. Oh, did you guys hear that? That's my cat, Jackson. Guarantee you that these microphones pick up everything. <laughs> oh, hey, Jackson. He's coming to say hi to me. All right, so my first book off my shelf was... <laughs> Are we supposed to say it? Are we supposed to say it? No, I don't know. It was <laughs> the first book off my shelf was *A Movable Feast* by Ernest Hemingway. Bah, bah, bah. Bah, bah, bah. It's a collection of short stories written by Hemingway about his time living in Paris um, in the 1920s with his wife Hadley and later their son Bumby and their experience being poor and living there and talking with the other people living there at the time who were also writers and artists. I first put it on my list probably around 2002 so like 16 years ago um but then i got the physical book in 2011 when dylan gave me it as a present you're welcome <laughs> so that's a cool I edition feel... i'm looking at it right i'm we can just yeah it's yeah, a cool so edition the edition i have is um from 2009 it's called the restored edition and that's actually something i want to talk about with regard to the book because it's not the traditional one you might read in school it talks a lot about the creation of the manuscript because it was published posthumously is that how you pronounce it mm-hmm. um, yes so it was kind of his wife at the time his fourth wife mary put it together the way she thought it should be, but some criticize and say this is not the way he would have wanted it. So this version was put together by his grandson, and so it includes parts that the other book didn't, and it includes like drafts and things that are unfinished. That's interesting. I wonder, because I've read this book, and I wonder if I read a different version. Like, I don't think it was the restored version, so I might have read a different one. One of the main changes also is that apparently the version you read, Bale, yep. uh, is much nicer to Hemingway's second wife. Because that was who the grandson's related to, and that's like one of the controversies about this. It's just really interesting. There's a weird history of seminal works being published posthumously that weren't ever really supposed to be published. Right. Like Long Day's Journey Into Night by O'Neill was never supposed to be published, but his wife was like, eh, send it out there. That is my only critique with this book, is that I felt a little guilty reading it and that i wondered like does hemingway want me to read it does he want me to read it in this form no i think he was not a nice person i i very much admire his writing i think he's an incredible writer but yeah but i think that just by nature of like reading the different drafts reading the explanations of how they decided what to include it just put me in the headspace of should i be reading this instead of just like this is what the book is another thing about this restored edition is that i strongly hate the cover (laughs) i think it (laughs) It is a puce green, like a gross, like vomit green. It has a picture. It's, it looks like it's from his passport at the time when he was living in Paris. And he looks young and handsome, not the like sort of burly bearded man you think of when you think of Hemingway. 
However, it's just so boring. It just looks so academic. It looks like something you'd get in school. I don't know. I don't mind it. I kind of like it. Um, I, I very much like the picture. It's a strange picture. Not strange. It's just a unique one that I've never seen before. I think that's what that's what my eyes are drawn to, and I like I like seeing pictures like that where you know history thinks of people one way, like everyone thinks of him as like Papa, but yeah, it's like oh he's dashing and like looks like he could kill you. Yeah, yeah. on the back though it has it has the Papa Hemingway, oh, there you go. So, like just yeah. in case you didn't know who that's who it was. I, I just feel like this would be a prime choice for one of those, like, you know, when they do the restored covers and they make them flashy and exciting for new readers, I think they could do a really nice Paris-themed one. Um, so this has been sort of on my radar since 2002, because when I was in high school, we started to study Hemingway, but the other class got to read The Old Man in the Sea, and my class read The Mosquito Coast. Who knows why? That survived your teacher, by the way. I had to read The Stupid Mosquito Coast, like, too. why? Why that book? I don't get it. So I wanted to read The Old Man in the Sea, people really liked it. Also, fun fact about me is I studied abroad in Paris, and I love Paris. And so how can you not want to read A Movable Feast? But you know, I wasn't a huge fan of The Sun Also Rises. Controversial opinion. Shame. So that's another reason why I put this to the side. But I really love this book. I had the experience that Toby was saying where it's like, why haven't I read this before? I had to kind of slow myself down because I was going through it so quickly. It's really easy to burn through this book because it's just a bunch of very short, like snapshot kind of portraits. And so I read it basically in two nights. It was a short book too, yeah. Yeah, it's only like 200 pages. Um, And what I really liked about it, obviously, guys, I don't know if you know this, but Hemingway has like really stark prose. Like really mm. short sentences. I never, never found that to be true. But that's certainly uh, not a, a known fact about him. I think I'm the first one who said it, <laughs> but I, I marked off a quote that I liked in particular. Is everybody ready? Only yeah. if you do, only if you do your best Hemingway voice. Best Hemingway voice. I don't know what he sounds like. What does he sound like? I don't know. You saw his picture on the back of the book. What do you think he light, sounds like? Light okay. a cigarette and then eat it. Okay. <laughs> okay. When spring came, even... <laughs> that's, that's Voltron. I think that's perfect. I think that's perfect. When spring came. <laughs> and this is on page 41 of the book, in case people are interested. Okay. When spring came, even the false spring, there were no problems except where to be happiest. The only thing that could spoil a day was people. And if you could keep from making engagements, each day had no limits. People were always the limiters of happiness, except for the very few that were as good as spring itself. I like that because I hate people. Sounds like you're having a little <laughs> bit of trouble getting out of the Ernest Hemingway voice there. <laughs> a you little bit. I like that. Uh, I like that. It really romanticizes poverty um, and hunger and living basically in this hovel apartment where they had no running water. They were literally using chamber pots and they had no money and they weren't eating and he would walk around the street to fill himself up. Um, And it it makes it seem beautiful, but at the same time... In my memory of it is um, the memories of the meals that he describes. Because he describes like when he does have a meal... He kind of blows, he gets like some money and he blows it all and it like takes, is it his wife at the time? Yeah, Hadley. Yeah, like out to the country, I think, and like they have this picnic and they just, just the way he describes the wine and the food they eat is so amazing. It's just like, that's an image that's like stuck in my mind. Yeah. And it's funny, I mean, most of the book is about being miserable. Not miserable, but it's not miserable, is it? Like he doesn't describe it as being miserable. No, he, he definitely romanticizes it. He makes it seem appealing. It makes you want to move to Paris and like quit your job but the food is amazingly described i agree it made me think that i did paris wrong when i lived there because at the time i was a vegetarian and i didn't drink 
And my host mother did not know what to do with me. She's like, uh, eggs again? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I regret that. I, I want to go back and, and do it Hemingway's. Well, I was going to say, I don't know. That is one other detail I remember. Is like he does go on a thing. He's like, it was a fine day today. We had a bottle of claret with breakfast. Yeah. And then two bottles. And it's just like, what is happening? Yeah. I was feeling a bit tired. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then another thing that I liked is his description about writing and his talk about getting inspiration in the process of writing. Um, This is, I'm sure, a very famous quote, but on page 22, he talks about how he would write. He said, I would stand... Oh, sorry, am I supposed to do it in Hemingway? Yes. Yes. I I would stand and look out over the roofs of Paris and think, do not worry. You have always written before and you will write now. All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. And I, I like that idea that, like, when you're just sitting down, you're like, oh, my God, I don't have anything to write. I'm an idiot. I, I can't do this. If you just start writing and go from there. I've heard that quote about writing many times, and people throw it out as an inspirational quote, and I think it is inspiring. But it's also, like, a way to not get, not, not get any work done. Because there's, there's that, like, requirement, like, all you have to do is write one true sentence something that you know and everyone in the world will recognize as truth on the page it's like okay like maybe Ernest Hemingway can like bang that out in an afternoon but uh well one thing I liked about the restored edition is that it includes some pictures and it shows like all of these cross outs and how many times he rewrote the same short quote true sentence so even though he talks about how easy (laughs) it is he spent some time on it he's just full of crap (laughs) and um champagne uh, so yeah, so my only critique of the book is that I wish I'd read the original instead of the restored because there was sort of a disjointed quality to it. And I also really wanted more of his wife Hadley's story. And I know that there is a book that takes up her perspective. So I might read that because she very much is on the sideline. And I'm thinking like, well, he's out drinking and writing. What is what is she doing? At the end of this, I'm giving it four stars. I'm definitely going to keep it on my shelf. I'm going to recommend it to other people, but I do want to pick up the the original. I wonder if you might have given the original version. I mean, I know you and I are different people. I think I gave the original five stars. Yeah, I feel like I might have. That does sound kind of crappy to read that kind of disjointed, weird. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really want to hear notes from other people. Like, I remember reading it as like just a solid, like you blast through it, it's so fast, and there's no interruption, so you feel like immersed in this world. Like, you really do feel like that kind of out-of-body experience where you feel like you're sitting next to him in the cafe doing whatever. Yeah, I think I would have preferred this. This one felt like maybe it was aimed at people that had already read the first one and wanted like a different way into it. What a small audience. I know, right? Um, My questions for you guys related to this book have to do with setting. Um, I have three questions and you can answer any of them. Number one, have you ever been inspired to visit a city based on a book? Number two, have you ever visited a city based on a book and it was different than you expected? Or number three, have you ever read a book about your own city or your own town? Yes, to the first two. I definitely, when I read this, I hadn't been to Paris, a movable feast, and I defy anyone to read this and not want to go to Paris immediately. And yeah, it was different. It was like obviously different, you know, such a different time. Paris these days is a much more bustling place, I feel like. like it's certainly, there's a, lot of, there's a lot going on in a movable feast, but... Um, there's just, yeah, it's like a, it's a modern city. And I think maybe me and my naive expectations, I was like expecting maybe a place, I still loved Paris, but I think I expected it to be a little bit more charming. And there's still like charming pockets, but I think a lot of people these days go to it thinking like Ratatouille 
and it's more just like London, but with different architecture. Right, <laughs> you right. know. But I still, that, that saying that, it sounds like I don't like Paris. I really liked it, but yeah. I have a list of places I'd like to go based on books. Not like a formal list. <laughs> not, not, nothing that exciting. But I'm th- thinking back, recently I was in Edinburgh, and it wasn't a direct correlation because obviously J.K. Rowling isn't talking about Edinburgh in her in Harry Potter, but just walking through that city, I was like, I totally get why she was inspired to write something like this walking through those streets because it does yeah because that's where she lived at the time that's where she lived at the time and where she wrote the wrote the first book and one example of something (laughs) that didn't live quite live up to expectations and (laughs) in the da vinci code i created in my head a like really fantastic huge expansive version of westminster cathedral in london Uh based on like where this the, one of the final conflicts of the book happens. I won't go into it more than that in case anyone hasn't read The Da Vinci Code. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, it made me feel like it was this huge, huge expanse of space where there were giant statues everywhere. And really, it's it's beautiful. And it's one of my favorite places I visited in London, but it is so different than how I imagined it. I remember when we were in Paris, Andrew, I feel like people went to the base of the pyramid at the Louvre because of The Da Vinci Code. Almost certainly. Mm. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did go to Greece because when I was a kid, I was obsessed with Delaire's book of Greek myths, and I wanted <laughs> to see Delphi and climb, climb Mount Olympus. <laughs> so before we move on from Hemingway and setting and everything, Andrew, did you have any fun facts you wanted to I share? I have one fact, and I mean, it's because he's this really unknown author, so there's not like a lot on him. Right, yeah. sure. But the like origin story of... A movable feast is really cool because, I mean, he was writing all of this contemporaneously to when he was in Paris, but he lost all of his notebooks. Mm. I don't know if you heard this story, yeah, but yeah. that was somehow in the in this version. Yeah, no, I love the story. Uh, so I'll, I'll read this quote. It's from a New York Times op-ed piece from July 2009 by A.E. Hockner, and it describes how Hemingway found his notebooks. In 1956, Ernest and I were having lunch at the Ritz in Paris with Charles Ritz. Side note, name drop. (laughs) The hotel's chairman. When Charlie and I asked Ernest if he was aware that a trunk of his was in the basement storage room, left there in 1930. Ernest did not remember storing the trunk there, but he did recall that in 1920s, Louis Vuitton, name drop, had made a special trunk for him. (laughs) Ernest had wondered what had happened to it. Charlie had the trunk brought up to his office, and after lunch, Ernest opened it. It was filled with a ragtag collection of clothes, menus, receipts, memos, hunting and fishing paraphernalia, skiing equipment, racing forms, correspondence, and on the bottom, something that elicited a joyful reaction from Ernest, the notebooks. So that's where they were. <laughs> so he found like this treasure trove of notebooks, and then from there he started to assemble a movable feast, which he did not finish before he died. Can, but can you imagine I, that? That would be so crazy, to like find this thing that you lost like decades before. <laughs> like I get excited when I find a necklace that I lost. <laughs> Luckily, Louis Vuitton has made a lot of specialized trunks for me and left them about the world, so I think <laughs> this can't happen for me. Yeah, on, your, <laughs> on your next international trip, you're just going to sew your papers. Easy to bitch you um, so again, uh, Movable Feast by Ernest Hemingway, four stars. And now is the time of the podcast where Dylan picks new books for me and Toby. Ooh, hooray. Okay, who wants to go first? Toby. Uh, I guess I'd like to go first. Um, so your random number is 55. Ooh, okay. Ooh. Writing Down the Bones, Freeing the Writer Within by Natalie Goldberg. I just added this. I just added this to the list. That's hilarious. Well, guess what? You're just reading this. I literally picked it up on a on a trip home. This is exciting. This is a physical book on my shelf. Ooh. Ooh, Ooh a rarity. Yeah. Rarity. Um, and one that just got on my shelf this 
uh, last weekend. So yeah, I was home and I was buying um, Christmas gifts for everybody at the used bookstore. Uh, and so yeah, and I saw this and I was like, oh, I've heard about this book, so cool. Billy's random number is 41, and that is History of Wolves by Emily Ferland. Oh, yeah. This is the exact opposite of the first books because our first books were two heavy hitters that every our first three books were all heavy hitters people had heard of. And this is like indie. First, I want to say that I'm really psyched about this because, again, this is weirdly a new one for me, too. I got it as a gift for Christmas. Mm. My, me and my friends. What, last Christmas? Yeah. That's not that new. Um, I have friends that we go to the bookstore and we don't want to buy for ourselves. So we each pick out a book and then we have the other person buy it for us. <laughs> <laughs> and this was Excellent. the one I picked. Um, it was a finalist for the Man Booker Prize. I don't want to say much about it, but I will read the first line. Ooh. Hemingway voice. Hemingway voice. Okay. It's not that I never think about Paul. Ah. So I'm, ex- I'm excited for this one. This should be fun. And Andrew, how's Catch-22 going? It's going pretty well. I'll admit I've been a little slow with it. Um, but I live in New York City, and it's actually a great train book because the chapters are reasonably short. So like, no matter how long my commute is, it's like easy to knock out a few of them. Recommended for the commuter on the go. Well, thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads at goodreads.com slash the To Read List podcast. We're on Facebook and Instagram at the To Read List podcast and on Twitter at To Read List pod. Thanks to Toby, Dylan, and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me and to Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books. books, books, books. books. Hemingway style. <laughs>